This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. Well, come on in if you haven't already, and uh, if you could take out your Bible and turn in your Bible to the book of Titus. This is a book at the very end of the New Testament. If you are new to the Bible, uh, you can go to Revelation, which is the very last book, and then just go left to a big book called Hebrews, and then go a couple of other books more to the left. Just want to welcome all of you. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, we have been in a series together, if you're new with us, in this book uh, of Titus, and we are in chapter 3. So while you're turning there, I'd like to honor an, an individual. This week I was impacted by the death of a man named Zig Ziglar. I don't know if you've ever heard that name before, but he was a well-known Christian motivational speaker, and he wrote several books, and he traveled the country, and he passed away Wednesday in Plano at the age of 86. Now, why did this impact me? Well, you might be surprised maybe to hear this, but I haven't always been the most smiley guy that you've ever met. There was a period of about five years of my life, this would be high school, early college, where I was struggling with a depression that was fed, I believe, by several addictions, including nicotine, pornography, and a constant craving approval from others. And it left me constantly discouraged, and I was afraid that I would never change. I remember one non-Christian co-worker telling me on several occasions at work, Rob, you always look so sad. And it was an accurate statement. I was sad. I felt like my life was stuck on this merry-go-round that was sickening me, and I just wanted to get off and sit down and rest. And so in those days, I would look to the gospel, but I also began to look into the world of self-help books and seminars. I would have never admitted it if you asked me, but I began to wonder if Jesus was really enough. I became a student of human motivation. I was trying to figure out what makes people tick because I wanted to figure out what made me tick and fix myself. And funny, somewhere in this world of self-help, I came across Zig Ziglar and I heard a different message. See, like the others, he taught that change was possible for anyone, and this is what drew me in. But unlike others, he also emphasized that his life never really changed until he was changed through a relationship with Jesus Christ at the age of 42. So the irony is that while I was looking for self-help, I was pointed back to God's help in the gospel. And I share that personal story this morning for two reasons. First of all, many of us know what it feels like to be stuck on a merry-go-round where you're moving, but you're not moving, and you wonder how you can break free and see real and lasting change happen in your life. And maybe your merry-go-round is a form of depression that I just described, or maybe it's a sin that you're sick of dealing with, or maybe it's bitterness or jealousy or something that you're waiting for. But all of us have areas of our lives where we want to see change, and if we're honest in varying degrees, we all ask the question, is change really possible for me? And the second reason I share it is because the Apostle Paul answers this question in the passage we're looking at this morning, and he shows how the gospel brings real and lasting change for anybody. So I'd like to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll pray and get started. Chapter 3, Paul writing says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Father, we ask that the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, would appear in front of us, that you would save us, that you would change us, and that you would cause us to be devoted to good works for the spread of the gospel and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's just recap if you're joining us for the first time or you would like a reminder of what's happening in this book. The Apostle Paul has left his apprentice and his helper named Titus, which is what the name of the book is named after, on this island called Crete to establish and plant churches where many believers have come to faith in Christ through their evangelism. Paul and Titus and many others have evangelized. Many have come to faith in Christ and a and burgeoning church is forming in several towns and several cities. And Titus is tasked with the opportunity to plant and provide structure and establish churches in these areas. And Crete is not the easiest place for Titus to be. It's not his hometown. It's not where he's from. It's not where Paul is from. In describing this island, Paul quotes from one of their own prophets, and he describes it like this in verse 1 through 112. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Paul recognizes that there are intense cultural challenges to Crete, and he's warning Titus about this. There's unique temptations that Cretans struggle with. But we don't avoid spreading the gospel or planting churches in places just because it's difficult or that there are unique cultural challenges. Jesus died for the Cretans. And it was sufficient reason because he died that Paul and Titus go to them and preach the gospel and see many believe. Now add to these difficulties of their own cultural uniquenesses. There are false teachers who have taken advantage of the culture and preached this Jewish mysticism that was very appealing to the Cretans because it said something like this. Jesus Christ is very important. But Jesus is not completely sufficient to becoming a deeply spiritual person. If you shift your focus a little bit off Jesus and his word and onto yourself and our teaching, you can achieve a spirituality only a few have discovered, and this will make you very unique and special. Does any of that sound familiar to you in this day? And one of the dangers of this false message that begins to spread among the people is that it made conforming to the image of Jesus unnecessary at best and impossible at worst. And what Paul says to Titus in that culture, God says to us this morning in our culture, despite what you've been told, and regardless of how certain you feel about it, you can change. You can change. And you can change Because you've been changed. And that's going to serve as a very simple outline for us today. Two things to remember. It's a command and it's a promise. Verses 1 and 2, you can change. Verses 3 through 8, because you've been changed. So let's look at the first couple of verses. And let's hold on to this command that Paul gives Titus to tell the Cretans that God is telling us today. You... And I can change. Look at verse 1. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, if you're wondering why Paul needs to remind the Cretans to do this, to be submissive to these rulers and to these authorities, it's because they're tempted to not do that. They don't like to be submissive to the rulers and to the authorities. They were a people that got easily aggravated by the political leaders of the day. They got caught up in it, and they got vocal about it. 
and they got public, publicly agitated, and it had the potential of not making the gospel look great among the cities and among the people. And we could speculate more and more about what it was that agitated them, but we don't have to speculate too long on why this is such a challenge for them, because we can just look at ourselves and ask why it's such a problem for us. We look at someone in the place of authority and we quickly assume we should be in charge or somebody else should be in charge. We look at a law and we say, this is stupid that this exists. We shouldn't have to obey that. And this attitude shows up all the time in our lives. Why do we demonize the candidate we didn't vote for? Why do we dehumanize leaders that we don't like and make them out to be evil? Why don't we respect our immediate supervisor? Why do we assume I could do a better job than she could, certainly, or than he could? Maybe you're living at home, and you hate the house rules, and so you complain. See, we've all got a little bit of cretin in us when it comes to submitting to rulers and authorities. And we're all a little bit resistant to change. But Paul tells Titus, tell them they can change. They don't have to be in bondage to their natural reaction. They don't have to be in bondage to their knee-jerk reaction to the way things are. Now, Paul's not saying that we don't seek to change unjust laws or seek to improve anything that we can. He He won't say that in Titus. He doesn't say that in other places. But Paul is saying what he said in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So what he says is recognize in any authority, even if you don't like it, that there's an authority above every authority and there's a king above every king. And don't move so quickly to criticizing. That's what the Cretans did. They moved too quickly to this. They didn't cultivate gratitude for what God had given to them. Where a rule could be obeyed, they were resisting that and they weren't exercising humility and making Jesus look great in it. And so he, get, he does that. He says, be submissive to the rulers and to the authorities. And then he goes on and he gets specific. And he says, be obedient. Be obedient to them. I mean, this is how you display your submissiveness, is that you actually obey the rules. You obey the laws. The Cretans struggled with authority. And because they struggled with authority, they just weren't obedient. Culturally. Historically. This is a deep entrenched pattern in them. Now, it's important to understand that when Paul says, be obedient, he's not saying, gather all the Cretans together and just speak a message that basically says, be nice, play fair, everybody get along. Paul Paul wasn't uh, this really wimpy, mamby-pamby kind of guy. He He spent many sleepless nights in prison cells because he disobeyed the civil authorities when they said, don't preach the gospel. There's a time to obey God rather than men. But in rules that can be followed, he pushes for humility, he pushes for gratitude, and he pushes for obedience so that Jesus looks good to the watching world. So he says, be obedient. And then he goes on. He says, be ready for every good work. So this is proof right here that Paul is not trying to tame them. He's not trying to throw a muzzle on the Cretans and and turn this naturally passionate people into a docile and a wimpy group. He's not trying to impose a Jewishness on a pagan culture. He's not trying to say, your problem is you're just not Jewish enough. Rather, he desires to harness this passion and harness their energy to doing good works. That's what he says. Be ready for every good work. Leverage your readiness for arguments leverage your readiness for laziness into displaying the grace of God and making disciples. And notice he says, be ready for every good work. No good work is insignificant. Nothing is excluded and no person is excluded. No gift is excluded. Every single one of the believers in Crete had a major and an important role to play as the church formed and as structures were put in place to the making of disciples in their cities. John Wesley, the leader of the Methodist movement in the 18th century, said it like this. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, 
in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. It's a little bit of what Paul is telling Titus. Communicate that. Communicate that that vision for ministry and to doing good works, to making the gospel look wonderful in those cities. And then he, he gets really specific with the Cretans. He goes on to say, Tell them to speak evil of no one. Does everybody see that? Speak evil of no one. Now that might not sound very radical or dramatic, but what if your reputation for centuries was somebody that was always a liar, according to chapter 1, verse 12? Always. The Cretans were constantly deceiving one another for years, And for generations, this was part of their culture. They didn't even know they were doing it half the time. And Titus is to tell them, don't live in deception any longer. They don't have to feel better about themselves by putting other people down. They don't have to get tribal and exert power over other people in the group by speaking evil of of those other people. And listen, you and I do not have to live in deception either. If this is a family pattern for you, if this is a personal struggle for you, you do not have to live in bondage to speaking evil of other people or living in deception. You don't have to live for the approval of others. You don't have to live trying to hold up an image of yourself that you're protecting all the time, that you want other people to think about you and you're deceiving other people or you're speaking badly of others so that you feel better about yourself because you feel this competitive thing with other folks or something like that. You don't have to live in bondage to that. We don't have to feel better about ourselves by speaking evil about others. The scripture says we can change. Ephesians 4 says it like this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul says our words are powerful. Our words have the ability to to tear down faith and our Words have the ability to build people up and encourage people. That's what he says, leverage your speech for that, not evil. And now he touches on something really specific. He says, avoid quarreling. Not only stop speaking badly about other people that are in other groups. When you're together, stop quarreling. Stop arguing. Now, if you pull out your American Dictionary and you look up... This word quarreling in our dictionary, it means an angry argument between people who are usually on good terms. And if you do extensive research in the Greek, it means an angry argument between people who are usually on good terms. <laughs> it means the same thing. There's, there's nothing new here. This is not gracious conversation that's aiming towards helpful debate or seeking understanding. Stop getting angry at people that you're usually on good terms with. Stop quarreling. Stop bickering. Stop trying to have the last word. You don't have to be in bondage to having the last say and the last word and making sure if that person has heard your perspective and they know what's happening in your life. You don't have to be in bondage to this bickering intent that rises up in our hearts. Now you might say, gosh, that doesn't seem that radical. I thought radical obedience was something altogether different. I thought it required other things. I think sometimes radical obedience is choosing not to argue. (laughs) Times when you're used to arguing and bickering. Now did anybody experience this over Thanksgiving? few nervous laughters, a few more nervous laughters. Probably so. I mean, we're just, we're tempted like the Cretans to bicker and argue with people that we usually get along with. And sometimes it's old historic arguments and things like this. Paul says, you don't have to be in bondage to the quarreling temptation of the heart. You can avoid it. You can stop it. You can change. And then he goes on to say, You can be gentle. Now, to a people that are tempted to being evil beasts and reacting, he says you can be gentle 
tell them that they can radically change their response to things. They can show perfect courtesy towards all people. Be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, again, this may not seem very profound, but it is profound when you view that person that you're called to be gentle towards as an enemy. When that person is stopping something in your life or you you view that person with some kind of a prejudice or you view that you demonize that person in your heart or in your mind or, or your family has. What if your reputation for generations was that of an evil beast towards this kind of person? If you struggle with anger, you can feel hopeless when it comes to being gentle and tender and kind towards other people, especially that person or that kind of people. That's what the Cretans struggled with. That's what we struggle with. If you struggle with a family prejudice, you were raised up in it, a prejudice towards a group of people, you can feel this strong temptation to continue that course and to think and to live according to how you were raised and to go with how you feel and to go with your sinful gut. (laughs) But Paul is saying you don't have to. You can change. You can break family patterns that have been etched into you. You can break things that have been spoken over you. You can detect the lie of things that were spoken over other people. You can think differently. You can live according to an entirely different way of life. So that's the command that Paul gives in the first two verses. You can change. You can change. But the question before us is how can we change? How do we know that we can change? What does Paul pin their hope on? What's the motivation for change that he wants Titus to communicate? What will cause this change among people at Crete? And really specifically, how do I know that I can change? How can I take that into my life? How can I know for certain I can change? And here's where we get to the promise in verses 3 through 8. And the promise is this. You can change because you've been changed. This is Christian motivation at its simplest. You can change because you've been changed. So look at verse 3. Notice what Paul says. Very specific. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. So notice Paul is carefully using words that will encourage the Cretans. Titus is to show compassion to the Cretans, and he's not to tell them that the Cretans are unusual or unique in their sin. And I think this is one of the biggest temptations to overcoming any long-term sin is the temptation to think I'm on an island, I'm by myself, I'm all alone, no one has ever done what I've done, nobody's ever experienced what I've experienced, nobody's thought what I've thought, and you can find yourself stuck in a sinful identity and you can want to give up and say, I guess that's what I am. In fact, the culture tells me that's what I am. If you struggled with anger your whole life, you can be tempted to think no one struggles like I do and it cannot be overcome. And by the way, you have a spiritual adversary, an accuser, a liar, the devil, who will agree with that response and tell you directly, you can't be different, you can't change, things can't be better for you, because nobody's gone through what you've gone through, and nobody's been tempted quite like you have, or said or done or thought quite what you have. No one's had the kids that you have, no one's had the struggles like you have. So you are this way. So forget trying to ever change. You can't change. If you've ever done that, forget changing. You can't change. This is what you are. I mean, take same-sex attraction, for instance. If you've ever struggled with same-sex attraction, the culture says you can't change. You are this way. So give up the fight. But note what Paul says. The message Titus is to tell the new Christians is that they are not unique. Notice the words. We, ourselves, were 
wants. Hold on to that. Let those four words pour hope into your heart. We, ourselves, were once. Were once what? Foolish. Disobedient. Led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Paul says, Titus, tell them about the way you were. Remind the Cretans that we share something in common. We come from the same neighborhood. We don't have the exact same family and all that kind of history, but we come from the same place together. Titus is not to distance himself from the Cretans. He's to move towards them and communicate how similar he was to them in his former slavery to sin. He's not to clean up his history. He's not to make it seem better than it really was so that he can garnish their approval and so that they'll respect him more. Not at all. He is to move towards them with the same humility he showed when he pointed them to Jesus Christ in the first place. He's to continue doing that. He's to say along with Paul, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common, common to man. Not unique, common. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You can endure this common sin, Paul says. Tell the Cretans they're not unique. They can be changed. Because, Titus, you were changed. Remind them. And Paul says, while you're at it, throw me in there too. That's why he says, we. Paul says, it's not just the pagans in a Greek culture that were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Super religious people are too. That's what Paul was. Paul was a super religious guru person. But he wanted everybody to bow down to him because of how great he was and how self-righteous he was and all those kinds of things. He says, I was a slave to various passions and pleasures. I'm just like you, Cretans. Titus, throw me in the pile. Remind them of who I once was. Notice verse 3. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And that couldn't be stronger language. Paul's saying even the super religious person, before they begin to follow Jesus by faith alone, are filled with jealousy and anger. Well, what do they have to be jealous and angry about? But they're trying to placard their own self-righteousness and put it on a wall so that everybody looks at how wonderful they are and how godly they are. And they can look and say how great they are and maybe bow down to them and, and offer to them the best seats in the house. Maybe even God could bow down to how self-righteous I am because I achieved it on my own. You see, Paul is saying something very difficult to hear. Before we find new life in Christ, our lives are characterized by the opposite of his love. And that's hate. Slaves. Slaves to various passions. Slaves to pleasures. Malice, envy, hated, hating one another. Paul says it's not just the pagans on Crete who live with jealousy. It's not just them. Sometimes the super religious people are the people that hate God the most. So here's a question. What caused the change? Look at verse 4. How did the change take place? Well, notice he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, he's talking about Jesus here, Appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So what caused the transformation was not the religious doing of a bunch of works done by them in righteousness, so that God stands back and says, wow, you are so righteous, you don't need my mercy. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Not just in these eyes, but with these eyes, when they saw the love of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's seeing the love of God that causes us to change from the inside out. And this is a radical, radical concept to hold on to. This is what separates Christianity from the big boys. 
Every religion outside of Christianity teaches that you must become good on your own. You must become righteous through your good works in order to please a God or gods of judgment. Figure out a way to atone for your sins. But Christianity teaches that God is love and he's merciful. And we can't become good on our own, which is why Jesus came to live as a perfect human being and take the penalty for our sins and failures on the cross. And by trusting in Jesus, we are reconciled to God and we have an eternal relationship with God that surpasses anything you and I could ever dream of. Just think about what you'd like somebody to give you for Christmas. What's the best gift somebody could give to you? What comes to mind? Here's what came to Paul's mind. You stack up anything that Paul could get, and he said in Philippians 3, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So you put it on a ledger, and you stack up every single thing that Paul could ever receive by way of material possession, by way of spiritual attainment or anything like that. And you put it in this column and he says, Jesus and knowing Jesus as my Lord tips the scale like this. Boom. And I would part with any of this stuff and he calls it rubbish. He calls all of those good things rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and being reconciled in a relationship with him. Well, notice how this happens. How how does the saving take place? He saved us. How does he save us? Look at verse 7. He saves us by the washing. Everybody see that word? The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Very important. He says, the Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, Jesus pours out, not meagerly, but richly, the Holy Spirit who washes in regeneration and provides this renewal. Now, regeneration, you might say, well, what does that mean? It's a term that means new life. So we're dead in our trespasses and sins and something comes alongside and awakens us and resurrects us from the dead. That's regeneration. And Paul says, when we believe in Jesus, it's like his wash, his washing life immerses us through his Holy Spirit. It comes on us like a tidal wave. That's why we do baptism is because it's immersing. You're being immersed in the life of Jesus in your union with him by faith. His life washes us. And and Jesus promises this amazing presence as part of the new covenant. Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, who will be with you and be in you. You're going to be drenched in the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just pause for just a moment. I'm not trying to freak anybody out here today. It's not my intent. But we need to really consider this. What this says, what this passage says, is that through faith, we are given a grace that involves the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the transcendent, divine, eternal God, joining with our spirit and giving us new life. Christians are not just a bunch of people trying to do nice things and keep nice rules. Christians are broken people who've received the divine, uncreated, supernatural, clean, eternal life of God. The uncreated God himself inhabits and indwells anyone who's united to Jesus by faith. That's why we're called temples. A temple in the Old Testament was a place where God's presence dwelt. That's why we are called in the New Covenant temples. And I think if this makes us a little bit uncomfortable, we're starting to get ready for Christmas. I mean, every Christmas we should just feel a little bit of nervousness not, not about the money that we're spending, although we could get a little bit nervous about that, but about the drama of the Christmas story. 
I mean, just think about it. An angel announces to a 15-year-old Jewish virgin girl that she's favored and she's going to conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is going to be in Mary. And he comes. She's impregnated. I mean, this is, this is why C.S. Lewis said, you, you can't make this up. She's impregnated and the baby grows to term and she has the baby. That's pretty dramatic. I mean, pregnancy and childbirth seemed a lot cleaner and tidier in my head than in reality when I first experienced it as a dad. I mean, I, I mean pregnancy for dads, it'll kill you. It's tough work. It's hard work. It's tough for you ladies too. I'm just kidding. I mean, when I witnessed the birth of my son, I was amazed at how much was involved in this. A little taken back by that, amazed at how messy it was, to say the least. Messiness is a part of spirituality, by the way. All of us today ask this question, with all my mess, with all my sin, with all my brokenness, is God going to dwell within me? I mean, how big can this grace be? How amazing! We start to wonder a little bit why Mary pondered these things and wrote songs about these things. And God is with Mary in a very unique and limited way in the birth of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas, so that he can be with every believer in a broad and powerful way through his spirit that we celebrate at Easter. So that we can say with Mary today, amazingly, God is really with us. That's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the renewal that He brings. But why does He bring it? Look at verse 7. He brings that so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, through faith in Jesus, we're immersed and washed in His new life and renewed in His power But notice that we're given new life to be justified. Notice that word. And to become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So follow the statements very carefully. Let's recap. We're foolish. We're disobedient. We're led astray. We're slaves of various passions and pleasures. But then something happens. Our eyes are open to the appearing of the goodness and the loving kindness of Jesus. That could be summarized as the gospel. Our hearts see the love of God in Christ. And then our eyes are opened and we believe in Jesus and we're saved and we're washed in the regenerating life of Jesus. And we're given power and and we're given the, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And all of that happens in an instant and we are justified. Now, this is a legal term that means to be declared righteous, good, and clean. So, unrighteous, unclean, not good people are declared innocent and holy and good before God. And not only are we justified, we're adopted. That's what that word heir means. We're adopted into this royal family with rights and privileges given to us by the Father. And Paul's telling Titus, remind the Cretans that they are not to think of themselves only in terms of what they are by nature or who they were before faith in Jesus. In other words, he's not denying the remaining sinful tendencies. That's implied in the commands. Change, Cretans. Change. You can change. So he's not denying the the tension and the, the struggle with remaining sinful desires. But he is saying you must adopt a new fundamental self-image cretins that's not primarily one of a liar or an evil beast or a lazy glutton. That's got to be broken as your primary identity. A shift has to take place where you consider yourself washed and justified and adopted and an heir of God. And Paul says this over and over again in the New Testament where he uses the language of put off the old self and put on the new self. He says in Colossians 3, 
Stop lying to one another, Colossian church, seeing that you have put off the old self. You could also translate that identity. The old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So if you've got this old, war-torn, nasty, smelly coat, and you keep going to the closet and putting that on, Paul says that's not the coat that you've been given in Jesus Christ. Go back to the closet. I mean, my wife tells me to go back to the closet all the time. Go back and try something else. And, and that's what Paul says here. You, Cretans, try something else on. There's something else in that closet. And it's the robe of the righteousness of Jesus that reminds you you're washed, you're justified, you're adopted. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He says, you're holy and you're beloved and you're chosen. Go put that on. That's what you are. That's your identity. Robert Hokema says it this way. In his book, Created in the Image of God, he says, To those who are in Christ, Paul says, you are new creatures now. Not totally new, to be sure, but genuinely new. And we who are believers should see ourselves in this way, no longer as depraved and helpless slaves of sin, but as those who have been created anew in Christ Jesus The Christian life involves not just believing something about Christ, but also believing something about ourselves. So so this could be summarized this way, I think. People do not need this new and improved gospel that encourages us to become something great and wonderful and achieve some inner spirituality Like take this inner light that's just already there and add a little bit of Jesus and then make the diamond glow. Why? Well, first of all, that's not only not true, but because people who have been united to the resurrected Jesus by faith alone have already been radically changed. You've already been transferred from one kingdom to another. You've already been given a new life. You've already been given new desires. You've already been given a whole new destiny. And because of this radical, fundamental change, you can change. This is why we can change. And this is why we should change. We should not settle. The Cretans should not settle. We should not settle. But the key to change is recognizing this fundamental change in identity. And to stop striving to become something. But strive to be what you already are. And that's a huge difference. That's Christian motivation, by the way. It's not become, it's be what you already are in Christ. If you're wondering, what's the difference between those two? Here's the difference. Success and failure. (laughs) If you want to try to become something, you're going to fail every single time. But if you trust in what Jesus has done for you, you are something amazing and you can Strive to be what you are. You will experience success in that by his grace. And here's how he closes in verse 8. He says this. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So he says insist on these things. They're profitable. They're excellent. They're good. So good question is, how do we do that? How do we insist on these things personally as a church? Well, consider the first command. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. We can change. Remember this. Any of those things that were listed there can be changed. Any old prejudices in your life can be changed. Any old patterns that you feel like, I'm just stuck in this thing, it can change. You can change. And you can be devoted to every good work. You can, you can experience this Christmas season radical change. That's what the gospel says. So let's not slow down. Let's not slow down personally. Let's not slow down as a church. Let's not settle. 
We are not slaves to sin anymore. We are free to be the disciples Jesus has called us to be. Is it a struggle? Is it a challenge? Yes. Does it feel like failure sometimes? Yes. Does it feel like we're not making any progress sometimes? Yes. Are we making progress in Jesus Christ? Yes, we are. That's why we need each other. That's why we need people to to tell us where they see God's grace in our life and where they are seeing change. And we can be devoted to being changed because God's changed us. Now, he also says here, Cretans, recognize that you need to change in your thinking and change in your patterns. So where we need to change our thinking, where we need to change old patterns Let's be devoted to those changes and insist on those changes because we can change. And secondly, let's consider how that change takes place personally. How you preach the gospel to yourself. How you live in in this way. How you encourage your spouse or encourage your kids or encourage your community groups so that it looks more like the way Paul does it so it looks more like the way the Bible describes how we're motivated by the gospel. So let's be changed, motivated by the fact that in Christ we already are. So let's remember the way that Paul preaches the gospel to Christians in order to provoke change is that we primarily remind one another of our identity in Christ. So we're still recognizing that not yet a remaining sin We're not like moving away from that, that sin is not real or it's not a struggle or it's not a challenge or it doesn't ever cause failure in our lives. But we need to insist like Paul does on the already and not blank it out. Sometimes we just need to remind each other without qualification, without fences, without footnotes, who we are in Christ. We are saved according to his love and his mercy. We need to look somebody eyeball to eyeball and say, brother, you're washed in his resurrected life and you're renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, 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 but I'm a sinner. But yes, 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 you are a sinner, but you're washed in his life and renewed in his power. But I'm broke. Yes, you are broke and you're going more broke over Christmas, but you are rich with the presence of Jesus Christ. That's not permission for everybody to go broke on Christmas. But we need to remind each other that you're rich with the presence of Jesus. You're justified by his grace, but I'm still a sinner and I feel condemned. True, you will feel that way, but we don't live according to how we feel. You're justified by his grace. You're an heir according to the hope of eternal life. You're adopted into his family. So we can be good employees. We can be faithful employees. Why? The gospel says because we're faithful in Christ. We can be patient parents. Not because you have some inner patience that was born into you. You can be patient parents because you are patient in Christ. You can be courageous in proclaiming the gospel because we are courageous in Christ. So we've just got to insist that we act according to the way God sees us. And not just how we feel. And especially not the way that the enemy says or what he speaks over us. Hokema says it like this, last quote from him. He says, Paul is saying this, Engage in the struggle against sin, not expecting defeat, but confident of victory. For in the strength of the Spirit you are able to say no to the flesh. Again, we see the Christian self-image ought to be a positive one. So you can change because you've been changed. And the last thing I want to say is this. You may be here today or listening and you may not know what I'm talking about because you've never been changed because you just have never trusted Jesus as your Savior. Can I throw a few promises at you in the hope that you will? I'm telling you this morning that you can be changed through faith in Jesus Christ and you do not have to be a slave of sin any longer. You can be forgiven of every sin you have ever committed. Let me say that again. Let me say it again. You can be forgiven of every sin you have ever committed. Past, present, future. I don't care what you've done. 
you can be forgiven of everything. Let's say that to our city. Let's say that to people that we love. You can be washed in the life and power of the Holy Spirit. You can become an heir of God through Jesus Christ. But you've got to repent and give your life to Christ. It's messy, but it ain't cheap. You must surrender your life to Him. Turn from your sins. Turn from your life. Turn from the kingdom that you're entrapped into and surrender to a whole new king and surrender to his authority and you'll experience his love for the very first time. And you can do that this morning for the very first time. Even as I'm talking, you can call out to him by faith and say, I'm done. I'm ready to trust you as my Lord and Savior. Let's all stand and um, we'll close with prayer. God, we are amazed today that it is the loving kindness and the grace of God that leads us to repentance. And repentance is a wonderful thing. Repentance is an embrace of joy. It's agreeing with who you are and turning away from from joy-sucking idols and experiencing the renewal of the Holy Spirit and finding joy in the only one who can give us joy, and that's you, Lord. And so, God, we do that corporately as a church. We just want to be reminded again this Christmas season that we can be changed because you have rescued us. You've reached down in mercy and grace and pulled us out of the direction that we were going and you brought us into a relationship with God. And this amazes us. And Lord, we just want to embrace it all over again as if we heard it for the very first time this Christmas season. And Lord, for those who have not yet trusted in your saving love, we ask, God, that you would, you would make it appear, even as I pray, that you would make it appear in their hearts and that they would trust you for the very first time. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.